Hello, and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, November 12th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with this letter from the editors. Reflecting on One Year of Fearless by Emily Kestel, Fearless Editor, and Emily Barsky, Business Record Editor. One year ago, we launched Fearless. Ahead of the launch, we spent months planning what was years' worth of ideas about how we could work toward our goal of empowering Iowa women to succeed in work and life. This platform is still young, so you might be unfamiliar. But we want you to learn and connect because we believe women's issues are everyone's issues. Fearless is a business record initiative with women-centered content and events designed to help women and the companies and allies who both value and support them. If you are someone who has been actively engaged with Fearless this last year, we thank you and look forward to having you along with us as we all work toward a more equitable world. We hope that you have been challenged to think differently and inspired to work toward a goal you didn't think was possible. We know that this initiative has certainly pushed us in those ways, and we encourage those who haven't been engaged to come along with us as we continue the journey. In the last year, we've analyzed the representation of women in leadership positions, shed light on the importance of paternity leave, detailed strategies for pay equity, and shared policies and practices needed to make sure the post-pandemic recovery is equitable for women. We talked with doctors on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, people working to drive down the black maternal mortality rate, LGBTQ plus leaders, mutual aid organizers, and politicians. We published perspectives and experiences of domestic violence, postpartum depression, living with a rare disease, and body image. It is a privilege to tell the stories of courage, highlight inequity through intersectional and solutions-oriented reporting, and elevate voices from across the state through guest pieces. We have worked hard to challenge what people perceive to be business issues because we believe what we experience in life both in barriers we face and successes we achieve, affects us at work. We have been honored to connect with so many individuals through our, our events so we can get serious about empowering ourselves and others. Fearless has reinforced the importance of simply having a space for authentic discussions with those who may be very similar to or very different from us. We are proud of the work we've done so far, but recognize that there is a lot more to be done. Among our goals for this next year are connecting with more of you and telling stories through audience engagement, focusing on an in-depth and original reporting about key issues, expanding our statewide coverage and reach, inspiring audience members with stories of courage and fearlessness. Come along with us and reach out to us with any ideas or feedback. This issue of the business record is a celebration of the fearless one-year anniversary and contains stories from individuals around the area. I'll share a few of those stories now. Maria Gonzalez-Avarez. 
Maria Gonzalez Alvarez is a disaster case manager for the Tornado and Derecho programs at Mid-Iowa Community Action in Marshalltown. She is the co-founder and co-organizer of Immigrant Allies, which is a resource organization that helps immigrant families that formed after the ICE raid at the Swift & Company pork processing plant. She is also a board member of Assault Care Center Extending Shelter and Support, or Access. Her family immigrated to the United States from Mijocan, Mexico, in the 1990s. Undocumented for most of her life, Gonzalez Alvarez received permanent residency last year through her husband, Roberto. She has two kids, Alex, Alexa, and Carlos. Carlos, I'm sorry, Alexa and Carlos. The following story has been formatted to be entirely in her own words and has been edited and condensed for clarity. As told to Emily Kestel. I am who I am because of my mother's sacrifice. I came to this country when I was three years old. When my mom came here, she had to walk through the desert. I remember parts of Mexico, but there's also parts that I've blocked off. When my mom, brother, and I were going to come to the U.S., she had gone to Mexico City to see if she would qualify for a visa to come as a worker, but didn't make enough money. The U.S. government was afraid that with two kids and no income, she would be a liability, so they denied her. There were days that she didn't have food to feed us. I remember her giving us tea to help us go to sleep because we would be so hungry. I remember watching her cry sometimes. At my age, there was nothing I could do to help her. I didn't know why she was crying or what she was going through. Before we were going to cross the border, she took us to my grandpa's. He was a farmer. During that time, the Mexican government took away a lot of land and left him without anything. He would go up into the mountains with a donkey to get wood to sell in the city. My mom told him that we were going to leave, and he said, Don't go. I'll do whatever I can to help you. And my mom said, it's my responsibility to take care of my children. I can't offer them anything here. They're never going to have a chance to do anything here. Several years later, when we were in the U.S., my mom got the call that he had passed away, and she fell to her knees. She had promised that we were going to go back to see him, but she couldn't leave the country. She couldn't even go say goodbye. I asked, Mom, didn't you cry when you left him? And she said, No, because I knew that if I cried, I would have stayed. I wouldn't have left. We all flew up to Tijuana together. At the border, my mom was required to walk. There was no other way for her to come. The coyote that was going to bring her didn't want to at first. He said that she was a liability, and on top of that, she was a woman and the group that he was going to cross were primarily men. My mom said, no, my kids are going to cross, so I have to make it across as well. They put us on a bus, and my mom said, you have to be a big girl. You have to take care of your brother. I don't remember much of the bus. I remember being in a hotel room with other little kids, and my brother started crying because he was hungry. A lady went up to him, 
grabbed him by the arms and shook him. I remember freaking out and grabbing him and running to the bathroom. I laid him on top of me and rubbed his back so he would go to sleep. We slept in the bathtub. The next day, they put us on a truck. They put us in the back of a truck and told us that they were going to take us up to our families. When we got there, my aunt was there with her husband. I asked where my mom was, and she said she was coming. It took her a couple of days to arrive. When I saw her, she was covered in dirt and scratches. The first time she took off her shoes, the blisters on her feet were so bad she had to basically rip off the shoe. When we came to Marshalltown, there weren't a lot of kids that looked like me. We were one of the few Hispanic families here at the time, and there wasn't really an ESL teacher either, so we were basically on our own. I obviously knew I was different by the way I looked and the language I spoke, but I didn't fully realize that I couldn't do everything my friends did. I still did sports, my mom would still volunteer, and we still went to potlucks. When I was 14, I told my mom that I needed my social security number to apply for driver's ed. She said, you don't have one. You are undocumented. You cannot drive legally here. I said, but other people can. To me, it was so stupid because my friends could all drive, but I couldn't. That was my first, I can't. When I was in high school, people were applying for scholarships and FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and I couldn't do any of that. My whole life, people had told me that when I grew up, I could be anything, that I could pick whatever career I wanted. But in reality, I couldn't. I could only do what my family could afford. And with my mom working at a pork plant, that wasn't going to be very much. I couldn't afford college. For a long time, I thought that I was going to end up working at the pork plant. I would tell my mom, this is it. This is who I'm going to be. My mom would say, no, no. She's the type of person that doesn't let you fail. She always says, I walked five days through the desert for you. Five days. And this is what you're giving me? She'd tell us to just keep pushing forward and that everything was going to work out. That's when the raid happened. It was 2006. I was a junior in high school. That morning, as I was getting ready for school, I got a call saying that the pork plant had been raided. My neighbor said, Your mom is walking into the cafeteria of the plant. Ice is there, and she's probably going to be deported. At that moment, at that moment, I thought, what do I need to do to help her? What do I need to do to help my siblings? I decided to take them to school because I thought that was the safest spot for them. As I got to school, I said goodbye to my siblings and went up to my teacher. My teacher said, everything is going to be okay. It was hard for me to explain to them everything that I was feeling and what I was going through. As I was talking to them, my aunt called and said there was a rumor that ICE was picking up all the kids that were being left behind by the raid. So I left the high school and picked my siblings up. I went to my aunt's house and dropped them off. I'm like, Tia, I have to go find my mom. I have to find her. She said, but you don't have your papers either. 
I said, that doesn't matter because I know my mom would do anything for us. I have to find her. I have to make sure that she's safe and that she knows what's happening. My mom didn't understand English, so my biggest fear was that she was going to say something or do something that would get her into even more trouble. As I got to the plant, I saw all of these big white buses with tinted windows. I saw ICE officials pulling out people with their hands behind their backs. I remember holding on to the chain link fence and seeing one lady in particular. She wasn't my mom, but all I could think about was, that's how they took out my mom. That's how they arrested her, like she was a criminal, like she was committing some sort of crime. All that she was doing was working to provide for her children. I just started crying. I didn't realize how loud I was. I was attracting attention from other people beside me. The immigration officer came up and handed me a card with a number to call to find out where my mom is. I went back to my car, got to the house, and started making phone calls. Everywhere I called, they were like, no, we don't have anybody that's registered to that name. We don't have any clue where she's at. You're too young to be making this call. You need to find an attorney. Eventually, it was the evening. Usually, with five of us kids, evenings at our house were crazy. That day, the house was dead silent. I remember taking my siblings to my mom's bed. I was lying on the edge of the bed, and I could feel my sister's legs over me. My little sister was a baby, and I was holding her on my chest. My brothers were on the other side of me. I could hear them breathing, and I just kept telling them, we're going to be okay. We're going to get her out. Once in a while, I could hear them drying their tears and taking deep sighs. Nobody slept that night. When the morning came, we started making phone calls. We started finding different organizations and churches that were willing to support us. We were finally able to find someone who was able to direct us to an attorney who took on my mom's case. He was able to get a hold of her and find out where she was. She was at Camp Dodge. We were able to talk with her and she kept telling us, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to fight for you guys. I was telling her, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to take care of the kids. I'm not going to let you go. I think both of us were terrified, but we comforted each other. I kept trying to be strong for my siblings. I kept thinking, if mom was here, what would she do? I kept channeling her and everything that she had done for us. Eventually, the lawyer was able to petition for a hearing in front of an immigration judge. The judge asked for proof that she was a good mom and a good citizen. Since there was no official record of her, we had to count on the community to support us. We were able to get letters from different community members and teachers and organizations that she had volunteered at. Years later, they granted her permanent residency. After that, I told myself that regardless of what happened, I had to make a name for myself. I had to build a name for her because I wouldn't be here without her. We started Immigrant Allies right after the raids happened. There weren't any resources for the kids or these families. People didn't know what was happening. The school didn't know what was happening. 
They just knew that there were a bunch of kids being left behind and children were coming into school crying. There was no action plan in place. So we said, that can't happen again. We can't have a situation where a child is waiting after school for parents to pick them up and nobody's going to come. We can't have a mom deported because she didn't know that she could go in front of a judge. It was important to us to educate others. Part of the education was sharing our stories and sharing why these people are important to our community. It was time for some of us to come out of the shadows. I wanted to share my mom's story and her journey with other people. I think a lot of times people see these stories on the news and they think about somebody else. They think about how these people are criminals and that they're breaking the law. They don't realize it's your child's teacher or caseworker. When I first told her story, I saw her in the back and she was crying. She's not a crier, so I thought that I had broken her. She told me that it was therapy to hear her story shared. I think we've both grown from being able to share the story with our community and nationally. Even after all of this, my brother and I were still undocumented. So it was terrifying to her that she couldn't do anything to protect us. It wasn't until the Obama administration passed DACA that my brother and I were able to work and get our driver's licenses. By that time, I was already married and pregnant with Alexa. I remember when I got my work permit in the mail. My husband worked nights, and he came in with the mail at 1 or 2 a.m. He had a letter from immigration. I was like, oh, it's probably just them processing the papers. We opened it up, and it was my green card. I just started bawling. This little plastic piece of paper changed my life so quickly. I called my mom, and she said, is the baby okay? And I said, yes, I got the green card. I could hear her crying. She said, you know, everything I've ever given, everything I've ever done, all of my sacrifices have been for you guys. I could tell that it was a relief for her to know that we would be safe. It was a relief for me too, and as a soon-to-be mother, all I could think of was, I have to be the same woman that my mother was. I want her to know that her sacrifice, her trauma, her tears, everything that she's gone through, I want her to be able to look at me and say that it was worth it. The next story, Grateful, Showing Gratitude in Business, by Gigi Wood. Fall often brings out the gratitude in us. It's hard not to embrace thankfulness during this time of year as the leaves change colors and farmers transport their harvests from their fields to our tables. As we near the holidays, especially Thanksgiving, our focus turns to what we value most in life, family, friends, and the good fortune we've reaped throughout life. We gather together to show each other our appreciation and thanks. In the business community, many companies show appreciation through end-of-the-year bonuses or holiday gifts. Others incorporate thanks via events or gifts throughout the year. No matter the style of showing gratitude, there are many positive benefits to the practice of letting coworkers and clients know you care. 
Why Showing Gratitude is Important We wouldn't have the lives we do have without the people in them. Our blessings, our gifts, our wealth, it all stems from the people in our lives, whether it be from family, friends, co-workers, or clients. The same is true for businesses. Roger Hargens, president CEO and co-owner of Acumold, a plastic fabrication company in Ankeny, says, Nothing in life is guaranteed. It's important to remember that our customers provide the revenue and our employees make it happen. It all works in tandem to support our business and the families counting on the work to be there. Losing sight of this is losing sight of the big picture. At the bottom line, it's not dollars and cents. It's a collection of people working together for a common cause. We all have a part to play and a part to be thankful for, he said. Acumold is known as a leader in high-volume precision micro-molding with expertise in microelectronics, medical technology, wearables, and other emerging technologies. The molds produced are customized, so intricately matched to designs. It allows for the production of high-precision parts. The company has seen much success and growth in recent years. It's especially important to show gratitude in 2021, after everyone has spent so much time and energy overcoming the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, Hargens says. Acumold Chief Financial Officer and co-owner Steve Bowl and I are so grateful to be in a business we love, surrounded by the best team in the world, he said. We're thankful that business is returning strong and that we managed to navigate the challenges of the pandemic without having to close our doors or let people go. And we are so thankful we live and operate in a state that supports the hardworking men and women of Iowa. Stacy Pellet, manager of public affairs in Iowa for Deer and Company, agrees with the sentiment that the past year brought forward much to be grateful for. She says she has much to be thankful for in her personal life. We have so many things to be thankful in 2021, she says. The past year has been difficult for everyone. However, in looking back, I can find so many moments of gratitude. Our family had dinner together almost every night, a feat rarely possible with two very busy teenagers. We brought back family game nights and movie nights. These will be memories to cherish when our children are off to school in the next couple of years, she said. That gratitude extends to her professional life as well. I am thankful to work for John Deere, a company that exemplifies history, quality, family, and long-lasting heritage, exactly what our family farm stands for, Pellet said. For 184 years, Deere has helped feed, clothe, and shelter the world. I am so proud to be part of an organization that helps to change lives around the world every day. Sincere thanks can go a long way with employees after the challenges of the past two years, she said. It's important for employers to realize that despite those obstacles, employees, has, employees have often gone above and beyond to do a good job at work. 
I believe that past 18 months have helped us all to realize that every person we see is facing something most of us are unaware of, Pellet said. And yet people are showing up with a smile on their face and giving everything they have to give. Recognizing that effort with a heartfelt, sincere thank you is often the exact thing someone needs to hear. This gratitude will carry over from our personal life to our professional life and back again. Knowing we make a difference is tremendously motivating, and kindness is also contagious. Spreading a bit of thankfulness will benefit everyone in today's world, she said. How to show gratitude at work. There are a variety of ways to show appreciation for others. Some show it with a greeting card, others with money or gifts. There is no right or wrong way to show appreciation. The goal is to acknowledge the people who have done so much for us at work and at home. We've worked hard to make sure we are showing appreciation year-round, especially to our employees, Hargens said. We formed an appreciation committee long before covid but we found a deeper commitment during the height of the pandemic. Our foundation is built on the strength of our team, and we can never stop showing our thanks, he said. Quarterly company-wide meetings to share information about the business are one way Hargens and Bowl give back to employees. One thing we have always felt is vital to showing gratitude to our employees is through our commitment to communication, Hargens said. Each quarter, we have an all-team meeting day where we share a meal and talk about our business with our employees. Steve and I have always agreed that being open and transparent can go a long way in building team and trust. It may not be possible for every company to do all employees at once, even we break ours into smaller groups, but figuring out a regular way to have open conversations with your team is important, he said. Hargens suggests organizing volunteer opportunities for employees as another way to show gratitude in the workplace. We all like being part of a something that is bigger than ourselves, he said. One way to show this as business owners is by organizing team volunteer opportunities. This can be an off-site challenge like Habitat for Humanity or something organized in your own facilities, like packaging food for Meals from the Heartland. Figuring out a way to share as a team is a great way to bond as a family and to provide service to our community, he said. Pellet's advice to business leaders looking for ways to show gratitude to employees? Keep it simple. Showing gratitude doesn't need to be complicated or fancy, she said. It just needs to be genuine and personal. Years ago, I worked for a factory manager who made rounds every single morning to personally say hello to each employee. He knew our families, our children, and even our sports teams. I was at the lowest level, yet he always stopped by. I know that each of us felt very appreciated and that we mattered, not just to him, but to John Deere overall, she said. As author Zig Ziglar said about gratitude, you never know when a moment and a few sincere words can have an impact on a life. Next, implications of federal tax proposals on business succession strategies. 
by Drew Lawson and Kirsten Johansson, attorneys with Brown Winnick Law Firm. New federal tax proposals present far-reaching implications for many business owners. Business owners thinking about succession strategies are especially impacted by the current proposals in two major ways. First, the proposed reduction of the federal estate tax exemption from $11.7 million per person to $5 million per person adjusted for inflation, which results in an exemption of approximately $6 million per person, impacts anyone considering a succession strategy which includes gifting. The current higher exemption was scheduled to sunset on December 31, 2025, but the new proposals accelerate this reduction to December 31, 2021. Business owners who contemplate transfers to a child or other family member frequently facilitate such transfers by gifting ownership of their company or assets utilized by the company. A reduction in the estate tax exemption means business owners who have not utilized their higher $11.7 million exemption will lose that opportunity at the end of this year. Second, a tax on the use and utility of intentionally defective grantor trusts, IDGT, are also in the recent proposals. IDGTs have historically been used as gifting vehicles, by individuals, grantors, who wish to transfer assets outside of their taxable estates by gift or by sale, while, one, retaining the income tax liability associated with the assets transferred, and two, ensuring an appropriate management structure within the terms of the IDGT. The new proposals essentially remove current utility of IDGTs by requiring that grantor trusts be included in the taxable estate of the grantor. Unfortunately, the proposed effective date for the grantor trust rule changes is the date of enactment, which is likely to be sooner than December 31, 2021. If you are a single business owner with total assets over $6 million or a married business owner with total assets over $12 million, you should consult with your advisors about whether you need to take action now. You are listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, November 12, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Another story from Fearless. Joe Allen. Joe Allen is a non-binary entrepreneur who started their photography business, Joe Visuals, primarily as a way to help LGBTQ people feel valued, empowered, and visible. In 2016, they were diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's Burkitt lymphoma. Allen also works as a communications fellow with Future Leaders in Action. They live in Des Moines. The following story has been formatted to be entirely in their own words and has been edited and condensed for clarity. As told to Emily Kestel. As a kid, I was what the world wanted me to be. In terms of identity, My expression was compromised because not only was I living in a place where everyone looks a certain way, I was also in a house where comments were made if I wore 
boy-like clothing. I'm a person of color in a very white area, so either you try to fit in or you stand out. I was more scared of standing out than fitting in, so I chose to fit in rather than embrace myself and my identity. The moment I went through cancer, it allowed me to re-examine my identity, my purpose, everything. I was five weeks into my freshman year of college at the University of Northern Iowa when I was diagnosed. It was at such a pivotal moment in my life. I was a bird, ready to leave the nest and live my best life. At that age, you're just trying to be a kid. You want to make friends and go out and do things. I couldn't even do that because my symptoms were so bad. I didn't know what was going on, and I was all alone in a space that I didn't know how to navigate. I was very depressed. I would sleep a lot. Not only did I not want to leave my room, but I also couldn't physically leave my room because I was so weak. I felt symptoms six months before I got diagnosed. On my 18th birthday, I went out to lunch with my mom and my back started hurting to the point where I was crying. I couldn't sit in a chair comfortably. It turns out my back was fractured. I carried that pain throughout the summer. I was working at Journeys, and I was sitting down with a heat pack on my back because it hurt to stand or bend over. I couldn't shave my legs because it hurt. I would have to call my friends and say, Hey, can you walk me to the bathroom? Because I would have to use the wall for assistance. Nobody knew what was going on. I kept deteriorating further and further. I went from being 125 pounds to being 98 pounds. When I went to urgent care, they said that they couldn't test me for the things I needed to be tested for and that I needed to get into an ambulance. It was so dramatic. I didn't know what stage four meant. I just knew that it was everywhere and that it wasn't good. I didn't know that I only had 48 hours to live until way later. I had to get the most aggressive chemo that you had to get. I had to drop out of college because every 21 days I would have to go to the hospital and stay there for five or six days for my round of chemo. I did that for nearly six months. I dropped out, went back to UNI that fall for two years, and then transferred to Iowa State in 2019. During cancer, the most important thing to me was my hair. I was so upset about losing my hair. It was down to my belly button. It was losing a part of my identity. It was like a security blanket. I connected hair to being perceived as a woman. It was a thing that I thought made me attractive and made me look like who I was supposed to be. I was afraid of how I would look, attraction-wise. Obviously, with chemo, you don't look cute. You don't feel hot. You look like a boiled egg. I remember one thing my dad said to me at that time. I was crying, and I said that I didn't want to lose my hair. He said, I'd rather have you alive and here with no hair than you buried with all your hair. At that point, I had to say to myself, it's simply hair. After I started my first round of chemo, my favorite nurse told me that I was going to lose my hair in a week. She was right. 
A week later, all of a sudden, I started noticing a decent amount of hair falling out. I had naturally curly hair, so I couldn't brush it. Because I couldn't brush it, it had matted up. It had gotten to the point that I had to shave my hair off because it was a clump of hair on the top of my head, and if I were to brush it, I would risk pulling out more of my hair. That week, we got to the hair salon and I got my hair cut. It took 27 minutes. That's what my ex always said. I held your hand for 27 minutes while you lost your hair. I was crying. My identity was being taken away from me. I couldn't hide behind my hair anymore. Cancer for me was the moment I got to change who I was. There was a big fear of me dying and never fully being honest about who I was. I knew I was gay around the age of 15. By junior and senior year of high school, I was coming out to close friends and teachers that I was close with and could trust. I didn't come out to my family until later. I was raised Catholic, so that intersecting identity of being Catholic and black, where we don't talk about queer people around here, that was hard. I told my sister first. My brother was too young to understand. My mom had always supported queer people, so I already knew that she wouldn't care. It was my dad that I was the most afraid of telling. I came out to my father during my first round of chemo because I didn't know if I would make it. And what's the worst thing he could say? I'm dying at this point. I said, Dad, I'm gay. I was crying because there was this fear that I've taught to not be that person, that this was deviant and not acceptable. His response was good for me dying and putting that on him like that. He told me that he had known about the girls that I dated and that he, that he supported and loved me. He said that he accepted it, but I don't feel it. I don't think he fully knows how to show love to me. To be in the position where cancer is forcing me to reveal my identity, that was a lot for me. It still is. You want your identity to be celebrated and to feel like you have your parents' support. Cancer made me have to build up my self-confidence again because looking at myself in the mirror, I saw skin and bones and sunken eyes and no hair. I looked like a lifeless human being. Finding ways to express myself in the hospital was really important to me. I stopped wearing the hospital gowns. I was over it. I started wearing comfy, cozy flannels and button-downs. I grew my hair out, but at that point I looked like a Q-tip. My hair was just floofy. I got it chopped five months in, and I got a short haircut. That was my first masculine haircut that I could get on my own terms. I have never grown my hair out to my pre-cancer length, and I don't know if I ever will but I'm currently growing my hair out to shave it off for my five-year anniversary. I want to be able to do it on my own terms. When I look back on that time, I'm proud of how I handled it because that's a lot to go through in a very short amount of time. In that life or death moment, I chose to start fully expressing and welcoming who I was instead of hiding it to please others. 
It gave me the drive to accept myself and to find a way to help others accept themselves and feel comfortable. I hated cancer. It was terrible. But in terms of the outlook that it left me, I'm happy. I went through it. I'm at a place where I love who I am. Am I comfortable in my body yet? No. I don't think many trans or non-binary individuals feel comfortable in their body most times. It's a work in progress. Next, from the Embarrassed Executive column, written by Jack Cara with Assured Partners. Question. How do you know if your company has a culture of safety? Answer. When you look past any existing safety programs and consider the mindsets and the behaviors of your employees and managers, you'll likely find your answer. Companies with a strong safety culture often have fewer injuries, less turnover and absenteeism, fewer workers' compensation claims, and higher employee satisfaction. In these same companies, everyone is invested in safety programs and is empowered to take action. If it's time to drive culture change, first understand that it's an ongoing process, but one that offers many benefits. Getting started begins with understanding the risks employees face every day. Step 1. Identify and analyze past incidents and near misses. These events provide valuable insight into the hazards that threaten employee safety. Combine this information with a review of existing policies, procedures, and environmental conditions to determine how to prevent future incidents. 2. Create a plan. Using the data you've collected, prepare a detailed safety plan that defines roles and responsibilities, procedures, reporting, and employee training and communication. It should address potential risk areas as well as buildings, equipment, and the environment. 3. Implement your plan. A true test of any safety plan is implementation. Ongoing employee communication, training, and practice drills help ensure your employees are prepared when facing an incident. 4. Continuous improvement. Change is constant. Monitor, test, adjust, and communicate regularly so that your safety plan keeps up to changes in your business. And number 5. Celebrate success. One of the simplest things you can do is recognize and celebrate the safety success in your company. Not only is it a great motivator, it helps drive safety initiatives. A culture of safety requires commitment and collaboration from every person in the company, regardless of their role. It also takes time. But with discipline and a consistent approach, the rewards will outweigh the investment. Our next fearless story, Dahlia Kai. Dahlia Kai is the founder and owner, owner of Unuhe, an interpreting business that specializes in Karen, Kareni, Burmese, and Chin languages. She was born in Myanmar, Burma, and moved with her family to the May La refugee camp in Thailand to flee the war. 
Kai spent 10 years in the camp before moving to the United States. She lives in Des Moines. The following story has been formatted to be entirely in her own words and has been edited and condensed for clarity. As told to Emily Kestel. We went to the refugee camp when I was three years old. I'm the youngest in my family and I'm the only girl. I have four brothers. My dad passed away when I was six, so I I was basically raised by a single mom. Life at the refugee camp was really challenging. You live in fear. Sometimes you'd hear threats from the Burmese military that they were going to bomb the camp. You don't have running water or electricity, and the education system is very limited. The houses are made of bamboo, and the roofs are made of leaves. We had a kitchen, bedroom, and a living room. It wasn't anything fancy. You receive food, but it's barely enough. My first memory of the camp was when my dad and his friends started building our house. We had been living in a house that was not completely finished. I remember looking up at the stars because we didn't have a roof yet. Five days a week, we would wake up and go to school from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The school was nothing fancy. You had six to eight people sharing one row of seating. You could barely write because there wasn't enough space. We had a one-hour lunch break. I would run back home and eat something for lunch. I felt like I was running my whole life because my house and my school were far away from each other. Since we didn't have electricity, we had to make sure we got our homework done before the sun went down. We couldn't afford enough candles to study every night. We moved to the U.S. in 2008. To come, we had to be recognized as a refugee by the government and had to go through a long interview process and a medical checkup. We first went to Bangkok, then flew to Tokyo, then to New York, then to Chicago, then to Rockford, Illinois. On the flight over, the only words we knew in English were milk and orange juice, so that's all we could order. We came here in the fall, and there were no leaves on the trees, or they were dry and brown. That was my first impression of the U.S., that there were no leaves in this country. When I came to Rockford, I thought everybody spoke so fast. When we learned how are you back at the camp, they were slow, but here it was like, how are you? For a while, I was sad and depressed because I left friends at the refugee camp. I didn't have any friends here. I remember feeling embarrassed, awkward, and insecure at school because I didn't speak the language. I stayed after school almost every day to catch up with homework because I didn't know how to do the assignments. For every hour that my classmates spent on homework, I had to spend five or six There were times that teachers would try and relate the material to Disney characters, but I couldn't relate. I had no idea about the princesses or any of the characters. I didn't think high school was the right place for me to learn English for the first time. A lot of kids used inappropriate words. One time, I remember greeting my teacher with, What's up? because that's how I heard my classmates 
say to each other in the hallway. My teacher told me, maybe how are you is better. I did pick up the language pretty fast after a year or two. I came to Iowa right after high school. I wanted to be independent and know how to take care of myself. As a single mom, my mom provided for us, but I knew that eventually I would have to be on my own. And I would rather start doing it at a young age, so if things didn't go right, I could still have a place to go back to. Starting college was fearless for me. I never thought that I would be able to make it because of my language challenge. But DMAC was diverse. It wasn't all white people. I had classmates from Vietnam and Somalia, and a classmate who spoke Spanish. It made me feel more comfortable. I worked at Embark for seven years while I went to school. I never had a break. It was work and school, work and school, work and school. I received my bachelor's in social work from the University of Iowa in 2020, and now I'm working on my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Thirteen years ago, I couldn't speak any English. I never thought I would make it to college. I want to make a change in people's lives. I know the challenge of not knowing the language, not being able to read mail, not knowing where you're going to live or work. That's motivated me to serve and help others. Turning now to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Killing a Golden Goose. They finally did it, my old friend KC said when I caught up with him on the Grand Avenue Bridge over Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway. Did what? I asked. Passed a reapportionment plan? They certainly did that, I continued, but I still don't understand why the legislature passed the second plan, but not the first. It was all about gamesmanship, KC replied. I can make a case that the first reapportionment plan was actually more favorable to Republicans than the second, he added. But Republicans voted down the first plan without even debating it, I said. Exactly, KC said. It didn't matter what the first plan did, they were going to vote it down just to show who's in control. But once they did that and saw that the second plan was no better than the first, and in some ways worse, they had the good sense to realize that a third plan might be worse yet. They knew they were already skating on thin ice because the one thing Iowans prize is a sense of fairness, and they knew that if they went to a third plan and then amended it to create true Republican advantages— It might well backfire on them at a time when they are already in good shape. In the long run, they're better off taking the second plan, even if it does put Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks in a difficult position. But that's not what I meant when I said they finally did it. Well, I replied, what did you mean? Gambling, he said. They're finally going to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. What are you talking about? I said. Prairie Meadows, Casey said. That casino is the engine that's driven a good share of development in Des Moines for three decades. Without financial underwriting from Prairie Meadows, there are a lot of projects that never would have gotten off the ground or never have been accomplished to the 
to the degree they were, he said. Much of what's occurred downtown has been helped in one way or another with grants from Prairie Meadows. I know some people don't approve of gambling and have opposed the racetrack and casino at Prairie Meadows from the beginning, he continued, but it's been one of the most successful community-based gaming operations anywhere in the country. Like it or not, Prairie Meadows has added a lot of value to Des Moines that could not have happened any other way. And now they're going to kill it, or at least severely cripple that operation, Casey said. How so? I asked. Online sports betting, he replied. It's just starting to take off, but already it's eating into the gambling profits that Prairie Meadows uses to support community projects. There's a simple solution, he continued. The state could require that all online sports wagering be conducted under the umbrella of state-licensed casinos, like Prairie Meadows. That would at least bring some of the profits back into the community. Other states have done that. But for whatever reason, our genius legislators decided not to do that. When it comes to gambling, he said, there is always a lot of money to grease a lot of palms. At this point, they've even greased the local media, KC continued. Earlier this year, Tipico, one of the top online sports bookmakers, announced a partnership with Gannett, which owns newspapers all over the country, including the Des Moines Register. Tipico's betting lines started showing up in Register football stories in September, Casey said as he turned and headed downtown. It's really quite diabolical the way online gambling is robbing Prairie Meadows of the profits it has used to prop up nonprofits and Polk County. Kim Reynolds doesn't like Polk County or other urban centers because they are Democratic strongholds. Do you really think Reynolds is that devious? I said. No, but the results are the same whether they planned it or not. And finally, some quotes by the subjects of this week's fearless columns. What does it mean to be fearless? To be fearless is to know when to be vulnerable, when to surrender, and when to rest. What does it mean to be fearless? Being willing to take risks, to move out of your comfort zone, and to not worry about what might happen. It's doing something for your own good to build your future. What does it mean to be fearless? Fearless doesn't mean I am not afraid. Fearless means I can still move forward, whether I am afraid or not. And our final quote, Being fearless is standing up and saying, I am entitled to my space on this earth. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, November 12th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.